Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And uh, I'm excited to be back preaching. Our interns did a great job. We've enjoyed debriefing them and giving them our, our feedback. And I think they're shaping up to be really, really gifted preachers. And so I'll ask you to continue praying for them. I'm excited, though, because I'm a preacher at heart. I've been waiting to get back on the pulpit and share with you the Word of God. And, you know, in just a couple of days, we're going to be going to the ballot boxes. And so I felt like it's important for me to capitalize on this since this general election comes once every four years. If you remember... Um, four years ago, I also preached just before the elections on a topic related to that. And so I, I want to do that this morning as well. The title of the message is Moral Authority. Read that correctly, not Moral Majority, but Moral Authority. And we're going to tie that into Nehemiah 5. And if you've been in our community groups, Nehemiah is a book you've been thinking about for a while now. You know, there's a pretty good chance that each one of us, probably all of us at some time in our lives have come under a leader whose authority we just didn't respect. Are you tracking with me so far? Has that been your experience, that you've had somebody who's had some measure of authority over you, but you looked at him, you just like, you know what, I don't respect you at all. Maybe it was a parent. Somebody really wounded you because they misused their authority in your life. Maybe it's a boss who loved to talk about teamwork but took all the credit for your accomplishments. Maybe it's, you know, it's the cop who pulls you over for changing lanes without a signal, but you know that they're doing the same thing all the time. None of the police officers at our church do that kind of thing, I assure you. But some other corrupt ones, you know, out there breaking the laws. You know, that's the idea. It's like we look at that authority and we say, you know, that's not valid authority in me. I know you have power over me. I know that you have a title that's higher than mine. But when I look at you... I am devoid of respect. I'm frustrated that you get to be my leader. Have any of you had that experience? Just show of hands. I'm not asking you for names. But I want to know, have we tracked that? It's a frustrating situation. Maybe, I'm, maybe you're not raising your hand because I'm the, the leader that's frustrating you. Like, uh, yes, that's been my experience. And I think that there's a serious problem when there's a gap between what a leader says, which is maybe the promise, And what they actually do, which is what we call fulfillment. And when that happens, what we call that is a gap in moral authority, a decline in moral authority. There's what we call titular authority, which is the position I have, the, the title on my business card. And that gives me some kind of structural authority over a set number of people in a defined scope of life. But there is what we call moral authority, which is the power to truly lead, which doesn't necessarily rely only on the title we bear, but because of who we are as people. There is an immediate sense that people will follow us because we're actually leading. Without moral authority, a person might be able to command or rule, but they cannot lead. Do you hear that? Without moral authority, you can boss people around, but you cannot lead. Another way of looking at it from the follower's perspective is without moral authority, people will obey you, but they won't follow you. They won't change because of you. Their lives will not in any way be positively influenced or built by you. Now, two days from now, we'll all go to the polls I'll be in San Diego, so I filled out my absentee ballot already. I did my duty. 
Um, but in a couple days, we're going to go to the polls. If you're a citizen of this country, you should be a registered voter. If you are a registered voter, try to get your gluteus maximus off the couch and out of bed and vote. In fact, here, I'm going to do you a little favor. I'm going to tell you who you should vote for. <laughs> Save you a little time, a little mental effort, okay? If you care about anything at all, and you care about where this country goes, and you want to have the moral right to have an opinion about the United States in the next four years, you must, you guys are getting nervous, aren't you? You must vote for, I scared you a little bit, didn't I? You must vote for someone, okay? I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Those did not appear in any order. Don't read anything into it, okay? I'm just kind of, you know, I had to arrange the pictures a certain way so they start in central. Anyway, so you get the idea is you got to vote for someone. I am tired of hearing opinions from people who don't do anything when they can. All, opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone's got them. And they're not worth anything, are they? I mean, <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now that if you have a conviction about the United States of America, you got to vote. Now, I'm not suggesting any of those six people are perfect, but you don't get to have an opinion if you don't at least find the person who's closest to you and work the system through every means you've been given to express your opinions and make change happen. Now, that's not the, ty- that's not the subject of the sermon. That's a little aside because... I think you should be voting okay, on Tuesday. But as we think about which one of those so ordinary people, right? ordinary looking people, six people who are vying, really two of them only seriously are vying, for the right to be the highest ranking leader of the United States of America. And here's the thing. Come Tuesday, somebody's going to be the winner. And half the country is going to be really happy, and half the country is going to not be able to eat for weeks. They'll be so seething and stewing in anger. But you know what the thing is? It really doesn't matter who wins the election if that person does not have the moral authority to actually lead. And it's no great victory to win at the ballots if you can't actually lead the country. And that is why what I'm asking of you is to follow your convictions. And as you're picking, don't go, I like the face I like the things they're just saying, but think about who has gotten in your eyes the moral authority to actually stand and be followed by their peers. Who can actually bridge the bipartisan gap? Those are things you think about because moral authority is the foundation of real leadership, and without it, all you win is a new job, a new title, and four years of frustration. Isn't that true? Now, I'm not a politician, I'm a pastor, so let me move on from this nonsense to talk about this other reason for for preaching this, is I don't think it's just politicians who need to have moral authority to lead. Every one of us will take on some kind of leadership role at some point in our lives. By the way, you guys in the back, you just dimmed that screen for a second, so we're not staring at those six people forever. Just raise your hand if you are a manager or a boss or director or CEO of some kind at your, at your workplace. You have, and the way you know that is there's somebody who works under you, and they know it. <laughs> Raise your hand if that's you. Okay, so we have a number of bosses, okay? Um, raise your hand if you're a parent. Okay, if you're not sure, your kids will be greatly disappointed that you can't even raise your hand to acknowledge they live. <laughs> Seriously, well, that's messed up. 
If you're a mommy or daddy, can you nudge your neighbors if you know they have children and they're not admitting? Raise your hand. The reason I ask for this is because I don't want you to just sit here and listen with your ears. I want you to know that this is about your life. How many of you are teachers? We've got a lot of teachers in our church. Any police officers? Let's just single them out. I mean, at some point in your life, even if you're not one of those things, you will probably be a leader over somebody. And the reason I'm preaching this is not just to think about the presidential election, but to really think about what gives us the moral authority to lead. Because there are so many people who are bosses and parents and teachers and whatnot, and they're so frustrated in the experience because everyone they're supposed to be leading doesn't follow them. Do you know how many people I talk to whose kids just won't listen to them? How many men come and tell me, I know that all these Bible studies are about how I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my household. Can someone give a memo to my wife that I'm supposed to lead? And they're frustrated because nobody is following. And if that's your testimony, then chances are that the breakdown in your life is that you don't have the moral leadership To actually lead. You might have a big fist and a loud voice and a huge ego, but that does not a leader make. Do you understand that? If you want to be an effective leader, you've got to pay attention to this. If you have a gap in your moral authority, you cannot lead anywhere under any circumstances whatsoever. So I'm focusing on moral authority. Do you agree with me that it's for every one of us to hear? We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 5. It's a huge passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will be touching on verses here or there. So the guys in the back, if you want to pull up Nehemiah 5 at some point, be ready. We'll refer to a couple verses here or there. I want to talk about Nehemiah's story. One episode in Nehemiah's story. And if you know Nehemiah, he's the one who served as governor in Jerusalem at the rebuilding of the temple. And you guys can actually dim that for now. We don't need to see it just yet. But his job was to lead the Israelites returning from exile to rebuild the city that lay in ruins. Because for them, there was a sense of real place of sacredness to the holy city. And it felt really shameful to them that God's holy city lay in ruins. So that was his job. And in this episode of Nehemiah's life recorded for us in chapter 5, there is an amazing story all about moral authority and how it gives a person the ability, the real power to lead. In Nehemiah's story, I can point out for you three ingredients of moral authority which are important for anyone you set as leader over you and for you personally in every one of your leadership roles. And the first of those, if we can go to the slides, is courage. Courage. This is a very important ingredient in moral authority. I think there are leaders who care so much about staying in power and guarding their authority that they don't actually use the power they have for anything good. I think this happens to so many politicians. When they're campaigning, they promise everything in the kitchen sink, don't they? I mean, they're like, whatever anyone raises their hand and say, um, you know, I'm a plumber and I want this. And they go, you'll have it and I'll throw in an extra. They're so good at promising everything in the campaigns. In fact, when we vote, we're voting entirely on the basis of the believability of their campaign promises, aren't we? Fulfillment is their job. Promises are what we base our decisions on. 
For so many politicians, I'm not that cynical. I actually believe that most politicians are genuinely convicted about their platform. They actually believe they have the best answer for America. But what happens to most politicians? They're all starry-eyed and ready for change. You know, we're going to have change. This is, I guess, the new way to be serious if you're... Put your thumb like that. Practice it. It's a really good way to look convincing. We want change. And if you say it convincingly enough, people will give you a chance. But you know what happens so often? Is they get there and they realize they're just one person and change is neither cheap nor easy. Nobody wants to pay the cost for change. It all played sexy on the campaign trail. But now that we're ready to clean up, everyone's like, oh, well, you know. It's like when we say, we should have leadership meetings. Great. We need to move 20 chairs. Yeah. Very, that's a fresh sermon illustration if I ever saw it, right? I mean, you see what I'm getting at is change is easy to talk about. It's monstrously difficult to do. It's especially hard when you're in the driver's seat called to lead change. And so what happens is they realize they're going to have to become game players, influence brokers. There is a system well entrenched there, and they become part of it, and eventually... The idealism of the campaign trail fades and they become real again. Rooted in the real world, they become cynical. And what happens is they become part of the game, the system in Washington. We sincerely hope that that won't be the case forever. We sincerely hope with every election that someone with real courage will step up and actually lead this country. Aren't you tired of politicians who keep voting themselves pay raises but don't actually govern this country? They play games. It's like a really civilized street gang sometimes when you watch Washington in action. And we all hope in our heart of hearts that someone who looks good on TV, the rhetoric is believable, and they will stand there and lead us. That's true at the presidential level, but I know that for some of us, our children desperately need and want to be led by their mother and father. School children want a teacher who won't just herd them like cattle through the system, but will maybe step in and change their lives. Everybody wants to be led by somebody who has courage. Problem is, leaders are human beings too. And it's awfully scary to risk everything you already have in your hand to change things that aren't popular. Now, before we jump down the politicians' throats, let me just challenge all of us, because I found in my pastoral experience that courage is exceedingly difficult to exercise. I I like to think of myself like most guys do, like, (laughs) yeah, whatever, you know. Why do we do that? Punching our own chest makes us tough. I actually feel manlier when I do it. And we like to think, each one of us, I'm a leader. I've got guts. I've got courage. You don't mess with me. If I see it, I'll call you out on it. And yet I've got to confess to you, there have been situations, you know, every one of us has that kind of conversation we hate having. You know, when I have a staff member who's maybe losing a little focus or something, uh, and I've got to have a talk with that person, I don't enjoy it. I don't, I don't look forward to tweaking that at all. When there's somebody I know who hates me, they've written me several emails to that effect, and I know that I've got to deal with them and try to make right, I don't put that high in my calendar. I'm like, well, I'm kind of busy for the next three years. Maybe after they move out, I'll think about it. I'm a coward a lot of the time. And so I'm not that ready to jump on a politician's case because courage is hard. How many of us will be willing to risk our whole livelihood to stand up against an injustice in the workplace? 
Believe me, you've seen it before. You've wanted to say something. But in the end of the day, we just say, you know what? I got kids to feed. I'm not going to rock the boat. How many of us will make a stand for something moral and upright in a romantic relationship knowing that what we're about to say to the person we love will not be very popular? I remember when I had to do that and tell Jeannie three years into our relationship that I've gone from being a genetic engineer to seminary. That kind of changes the game, doesn't it, ladies? Huh? Those of you who are like, I'll marry anyone but a pastor. Anyone. That's kind of unfair to her. And I, I had to tell you, I wrestled so much with that decision. Eventually, you got to tell her. You can't just go, guess what? I'm not really going to the lab. I'm, I've been going to church all these years. you got to tell them. But you know how hard it is to have courage when it really is important to have courage? You know, the context of Nehemiah's courageous act was that the rebuilding of a city is no small undertaking. And when you take a handful of people and rebuild an entire city, well, people get real busy real fast. They start to lose focus on the domestic things. And they were pouring everything they had into this rebuilding project. There were so many women who were basically single parents because their husbands were away from home building 24-7, sleeping out of tents on the construction site, and the whole job took all their money. And as a result, there was a tremendous strain on the people who were doing the rebuilding. And on top of that already existing financial strain, a famine hit the land. As if that weren't bad enough, there were people in in the nations all around them harassing them, threatened by what these Jews were doing in Jerusalem. And they were throwing stones at them, literally and figuratively. And it was a very difficult situation to live in. What happened was, because some of these people succumbed under the strain, they couldn't pay their taxes or buy food for their family, so they began taking the little bit of property they had and leveraging it as collateral against loans. And what they were doing is buying loans from people in the neighboring countries, people who were not Israelites. And when they were about to default on those loans, many of them had to put up for additional collateral their own children as security against those loans. I want you to think about what it feels like to be the father of a teenage girl and know that some greasy, conniving jerk who's already throwing rocks at your countrymen has custody over your teenage daughter 24 hours a day. And that until you repay that debt, he can do to her whatever he wants. Because that is exactly what is described in Nehemiah 5, is that the, the men and women were groaning and crying out because their children, and the implications in the text are especially their female children, are being ravaged by these unscrupulous people. So what Nehemiah did, he and his fellow nobles gathered so much of their personal wealth, and they started systematically buying back all these people who were sold out into slavery against these bad loans. Now, that's pretty noble. But here's the worst part. After they'd done it, these very same nobles, because they were kind of feeling the crunch, the pinch from the financial outlay, began writing loans right back to the very people they'd rescued. And when they couldn't pay, they started taking their countrymen's children and daughters as slaves in collateral. In other words, they were doing the very thing that the oppressors were doing, but they were doing it to their own people, which made it even more horrible. That's the context that Nehemiah is leading in. Not only does he have to deal with these threats from outside, but his own fellow leaders are working directly against their cause, eroding public trust, doing everything they can to mess this whole thing up. 
I, I don't envy Nehemiah. If I had ever to lead, and that was a church that I was going to take over, I would not work there. I would, I would flee from that situation like I was running in the Olympics. You, you feel me? This is not an easy situation. And everything in me, if I were in Nehemiah's shoes, would be like, I'm just going to leave. This is more than I bargained for. But Nehemiah stands up. And what I love in verse 6 is it says, When he heard this outcry, verse 6, he was very angry. That's so refreshing to me. It was so refreshing to read that a leader who hears about a moral outrage is genuinely very angry. And you know what I'm talking about? This is not for the cameras angry. Why? This is, you know, do you ever see that one footage of Clinton at uh, Ron Brown's funeral and he's walking next to Tony Campolo and he's laughing, telling jokes, and he catches the camera and starts fake crying? Right? Do you, do you ever see that? And this is not about which party he belongs to. So I'm just saying that's the heart of a fake politician, a leader who is doing everything for the cameras. This is not the kind of anguish which Nehemiah felt. This is the kind of anger that was a genuine moral outrage. This ought not to be happening. Now, the people already felt that outrage. But have you ever been a person in the masses and you looked at a broken system and said, why doesn't anyone do anything about this? Doesn't anybody in power care? Did any of you see the, the movie Stop Loss? If you haven't seen it, you ought to watch it. It's a, it's a pretty interesting movie. And I watched what's happening. And, I, you know, as, as much as I, I believe that the military is a noble institution, I really didn't like what I was watching that movie. It seemed like a trickery to me, to people, and, and seemed very unfair of a practice. And when I see something like that, I just want to cry out, doesn't anybody with authority care about this? Isn't anyone ticked off like I am? And most times, there is a deafening silence as all of our leaders go... Well, actually, no. We got bigger fish to fry. And here's Nehemiah saying, no, that is not, that's not going to stand. But I love what happens next. Go to the next verse there. <clears throat> and it says, then I pondered them in my mind. The Hebrew word there, it shows, it indicates really deep reflection. Not just, how am I going to play this out? Not a strategic kind of pondering, but of what is it that God wants done to correct this situation? What is the right thing to do here, no matter what it costs? Nehemiah didn't just move from outrage to outcry, but he pondered it prayerfully and thoughtfully before the Lord. <clears throat> and having received a word from God about what must be done, here's what he did. He did what would be nearly impossible for any leader to do. He stood up against his fellow nobles, and he made this demand of them. And the demand is insane. He says, look, we've got to stop charging interest on these loans, and we've got to return all the collateral. In other words, here's what he's saying. Give back to all these fellow countrymen everything you've taken from them as security on their loans, and just let them use your money for a while for free. And that's not a loan. That's just a gift. He's saying, look... I don't want you to get anything in exchange for it. These are your countrymen. Let them borrow your money the way your brother borrows your baseball bat. Just let him use it for a while, and when he's done, he'll give it back. Now, do you realize how crazy a thing that is to say? I mean, honestly, okay, if you think that's not crazy, you're getting bored. What if I came up to you in fellowship time afterwards and said, look, because I know all about the needs in our community, all right? I mean... What if I said to you, look, there's this person who really needs a car. 
I know you've got three grand in the bank that just sitting there collecting interest. All right, whatever. You're not using it tomorrow, are you? No, it's just kind of there. It's my balance. Can you give it to that guy for like five years? Let him just use your cash just for like five years. And then when he's done, he'll give it back to you. Are you still bored? I'm going to do it. I'm going to come up to you and ask you that. And how are you going to respond when you hear those words? That's ridiculous leadership. That's just foolish. Who says things like that to fellow nobles? And the thing is, he knew it was hard, but he did it anyway. And and perhaps the most amazing part of the story is, all the people gathered together say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to us. We'll do exactly as you said. And they listened. And here's here's that lesson I take from that is that when a person exercises moral authority and when they show courage as a part of their moral authority, people respond to that. You know what I think? I think cowardly leaders breed cynicism. But I think people are waiting for a courageous leader. Now notice I didn't say crazy leader, reckless leader, pig-headed leader, but I said courageous leader. The kind of leader who exercises courage when courage is needed. Not one of these guys. Not the kind of guy who takes a Zagby pole or a you know, Gallup pole and says, which way is the wind blowing? But the kind of leader who says, I believe this is where God has taken us. I've heard every voice. Somebody has to make a choice, and I've made it. I think people are waiting for a leader like that. For some of you guys, your very children are waiting for you to finally be a mom or a dad, not just a parental carbon unit who brings food and money home, but a shaping influence, somebody who won't let them get away with all the garbage that they're trying to get away with. I, have, I don't have teenagers yet, but I'm right around the corner, and I've been told by all my friends with teenagers, they're scary. I mean, it's, and the thing is, you don't want to get on a teenager's bad side because they say stuff like, I hate you, and they won't talk to you for months, and so you're so tempted to accommodate all of their garbage. It takes courage to, to raise a teenager, I've been told. I am not looking forward to that. I can already see the dark side laying hold of my two older ones' hearts at times. I can picture what their teenager is going to be like. And you know what? I am manning up right now. I'm trying hard. God, give me the courage. Because teenagers are scary. Will you have courage in every leadership role you take? Will you ask the Lord to supply it? Because without it, you won't have moral authority to lead anywhere. A second ingredient of moral authority is compassion. Compassion. You know, the thing is, in times of crisis... Leaders almost always have an easier time than followers. Do you guys remember, I I use movies a lot because I think they are the folklore of our generation. We don't have sit-around campfires telling stories anymore. But movies are the ways our generation tells stories. And do you remember the movie I Am Legend? And I just remember Will Smith's character when everyone's trying to, in a mass panic, flee from Manhattan Island. It's not a major spoiler, so don't worry. And the movie's pretty old, so shame on you for not seeing it yet. So they're all trying to get off the island, and here's Will Smith. Because he's a privileged leader, one of the big shots, he's in a nice armor-plated SUV with big bright lights, and he 
smashes through all the crowds and all that, and he gets to the front of the line. There's all these panicked people clamoring for a place on the ferry boat. And there's Will Smith. He gets his family to safety first. Now, if that's the privileged position of a leader, can he really feel what his people are feeling? See, the thing about leadership is, no matter what, you always get a few perks. You don't, you don't live through anything with the full experience of the masses. And it disconnects anybody from what they're really doing. That's everybody's experience in leadership. You know, I think about the times where I go to a retreat, and I'm the speaker, and, and I, I get a really nice room, and then I go visit the rooms where all the people are staying, and they are, like, disgusting. You know, triple-story bunk beds, and there's big spiders crawling across. There's no heat, and they're, hey, Pastor Dave. And I'm like, hi, guys. I'm so glad I'm not sleeping here with the rest of you. See, as leaders, we are padded from so much of the vagaries of life so that we can lead without distraction. But that has a, a real possibility, potential, to insulate us, to make us cold against the position and the experience of those that we lead. The same is true for parents. I mean, how many times have I heard a parent yelling? I've done this too. We yell at our children for wanting something that when we were five, we would want. You know, have you ever been watching a TV show and someone calls you to to something else and you're like, I just want to keep watching. And there's the mom going, hey, I said come to dinner. Forgetting that when you were five, finishing the cartoon felt kind of important. That doesn't mean you don't have to obey. It just means you will not be able to lead that child if they don't believe that you actually understand what it is to be them. You know, I think about Nehemiah's leadership. He did not take any of the advantages that were legitimately his as the ruler over Jerusalem. And here's why he was so upset, because while he was doing that personally, he saw his fellow noblemen profiting off the misery of their countrymen. And you might wonder how anybody could be that wicked. You know how you get there? You get there gradually because you start to lose touch with what it's like to be in the shoes of those your authority affects. That's how it starts. And I think it is so important for anyone in a position of authority to spend a good deal of time and energy really getting into this other other person's shoes. I think that's what compassion really is, is for a while I've done the hard work of stepping into your shoes, at least theoretically, if not experientially, so that when I lead you, I lead you from a position of actually understanding something of what it's like to be you coming under my leadership. You know, from a capitalist point of view, the nobles were doing nothing wrong. This is simply the, the laws of supply and demand in action. You need money. I got money. I'm going to give you my money, but you give me a little of your money extra back. That's just capitalism. And the thing is, I don't think that was so wrong from an economic point of view. It makes all the sense in the world to charge interest on a loan. When Nehemiah was making the challenge to his noblemen, It was not an economic appeal. It was a relational appeal. He was appealing to their humanity and their compassion, not to their financial prowess. He wasn't saying this makes money sense. It makes human sense, is what he was saying. And the reality was, they may not make any money off these loans, but they're not going to lose any either. 
the money will be returned. It just lets somebody else get a benefit for a while. You know, how many rich people have so much money in the bank and it doesn't do anything other than give them a nice feeling when they think about it? It's not being used for anything. There are people in our church who I respect so much because they have vast wealth, but it's not idle wealth. It's active wealth. They've got it in places where somebody is benefiting. That is huge to me. I bow in admiration in front of people like that. Because it's so easy to just sit on your money, buried in a coffee can in your backyard, no use to anybody. Do you have that kind of compassion that if you have something someone else needs, you'd step out and give it to them? You know, I think a lot of leaders are ineffective. Teachers, parents, politicians, pastors. So many leaders are ineffective because the people they lead are just not convinced that their leaders care about them. You know how many people won't respect the leader just because they're like, you know what, I know how this works. You make all kinds of nice promises, you smile at me in public, but when I actually take your words seriously and need you, you won't be there for me. I'm not a person to you, I'm just a face, a vote, a something, but I don't exist to you. I know people who have asked me, Pastor, do you even think about me once during the year when I'm not at church? I'll be honest with you, 80% of the time the answer is yes, I do. But 20% of the time, there's a dagger in my heart because I just go, seriously, bro? No, but I will. Because I realize that's wrong. How can I lead this person if in my own heart, they're not even a person to me. They're not even an idea. Somebody who crosses my mind and occupies the electricity in my neurons, even for a moment, how can I tell them I will lead them? Compassion is one of the greatest indicators of moral authority. I'd love to tell the next president and any other person who will lead in this world, without compassion, you will not be able to lead. If you don't love your wife, you can bark at her all you want. She will never change for you. And I can go on and on with that list. Let me give you the last ingredient of moral authority. And that's consistency. By the way, you know why I chose that picture for the blood? It's obviously when you donate blood, you get no profit from it. You're just giving it away, hoping that when you need it, it'll be there for you. Consistency. We've already established that one source of moral authority is courage to act when you need to, and another indicator of moral authority is compassion, genuinely putting yourself in the shoes of those you lead. But perhaps the most obvious indicator of moral authority is consistency, that there is tight agreement between what you say and what you do. I think the best leaders don't live above the law. And I've found, especially when I'm a retreat or conference speaker, that I relish being above the system. I'm so happy that I'm not in those bunk beds with them. I'm so happy that I get to sneak in snacks onto the the campus. I'm so glad that I get to drive off campus to the Walmart or the Pizza Hut in my car while the students don't get to. I'm so glad that I get to bring an iPod and they're not allowed to. I'm just so happy to be above the law. That is human nature. We all love having freedoms that are denied to other people. That's why we want to be in power. Isn't that true? How many of you guys fly first class on a regular basis? Anybody? That's good. 
Good. I flew first class once. I've flown over 300,000 miles. I've flown first class once. And it was in a little puddle jumper, so it wasn't even worth it. it was, but, you know, it was amazing how I loved. This is the best part of it. We'd like to invite all our first class passengers to pre-board. I'm like, yeah. And I just pushed past everybody, probably not as politely as I should have, because I was like, watch out, player coming through. Okay. <laughs> and that was the most rewarding part of it. Was that while all you Joe Schmoes got to wait in line, some of us, you know, had enough air miles to get a little ahead of the curve there. And everyone sitting in first class, even though that's their first time in their life, act like they do it all the time, don't they? You know, whatever, this is like how I always roll. And I'm wondering, as I sit around, how many of these other people are faking it that they're on first class for the first time in their lives? You know, this is how we are. We love being above the system, but the best leaders are not above anything. They live in the system that they govern. In Rwanda, there's a beautiful practice called Umuganda. Umuganda, it's been existing since pre-colonial days. On the last Saturday of every month from 7 a.m. until noon, every able-bodied citizen, 18 years or older, hits the streets, and in a collective effort of mass community building, they clean up their community as best they can. And it applies to everybody. And the amazing thing is that on a Saturday in the capital city of Kigali, you will see the president of the country squatting by a curb, sweeping and picking up alongside everybody else. It creates amazing moral authority and such a sense of real community and honesty that it succeeded in taking the war-torn nation of Rwanda and their capital city of Kigali from being a massive ruin to one of the most modern, clean cities in all of sub-Saharan Africa. That was their goal, and they reignited this practice of Umuganda precisely to become a world-class city again. And they are accomplishing it because their leaders don't sit above the system. The president doesn't drive in a bulletproof Pope mobile, riding up and down the streets, watching and waving while his citizens clean. He gets his hands dirty too. And that makes for moral authority. And you know, Nehemiah had the exact same experience. He's making a, a strong case in this text for his own moral authority, which comes from the sacrifices he's made. He says, I never, neither I or my family or our household, ever took the allowance given to every governor before him for the meal. The governor ate better than anybody because it makes us comfortable to see our leaders have a comfortable life, doesn't it? I mean, nobody wants to see the president borrowing money from his brother to pay the electricity bill. That's just messed up. So when the president spends all this money in nice limousines and stuff, it doesn't bother us. It makes us proud that our leader has it nice. Nehemiah didn't take any of it. And I guarantee you there were days when he wondered about the wisdom of that. Are you the kind of leader who denies even legitimate benefits in order to identify with the people that you're leading? Here's a, here's a way of looking at it. Do you watch things you tell other people not to watch? Do you use words you tell your children not to use? Do you cut corners which you would be upset if I cut that same corner as your pastor? In other words, is there duality in your life or is there honesty? He also didn't acquire any land. And what was going on in the rebuilding period was a huge land grab. If while the city was being rebuilt, you could claim block after block, building after building, you know what happens when the city's finished? It appreciates a lot in value. 
That's what happened with the rebuilding of Chicago after the fire. As a lot of people said, I don't want to rebuild this big pile of ash. I'll sell you my field for a few dollars. And the smart people who bought up most of the land owned everything afterwards. And when the city was rebuilt, bam! You got real estate barons who once owned fields filled with scorched ash. Everybody who had any shrewdness was doing that, but not Nehemiah. He said he never acquired any land during the entire rebuilding period. and said he was on the wall working side by side with everyone else. He could have been wealthy beyond his dreams. He could have owned half of Jerusalem to the applause of everybody. And he didn't do it. Not one acre of land in all that time. That's moral authority. He lost a huge investment opportunity to hang on to his moral authority. On top of that, he fed anywhere from six to 800 people out of his own pocket every single day at his table. That's a big table. Huge table. I think about that for myself as a leader because our church has such a robust reimbursement system. I think about myself, am I always filling out expense requisitions or are there things that I'll just bite the bullet and pay out of pocket Because this is my family too. Am I willing to sacrifice to be down with everybody else, not take the exception to every rule because I want to have moral authority when I need it? And because for 12 years Nehemiah lived like that, at the one moment when he needed to stand and make his voice heard like thunder, it echoed because he had the moral authority upon which to stand and lead when that nation desperately needed a leader. I hope that as you go to the polls tomorrow, you will check off, or on Tuesday, you will check off a box for the person who you most genuinely think has moral authority. I hope that when you go to work for a new company, you will look for bosses who have moral authority. I hope that as God blesses you to take a leadership role at some place in your life, that you also will use that authority in a way that is consistent with the character of God. I pray that you will be given by God real moral authority to lead, to lead your businesses and your spouses and your children and your church, your classroom, and every sitting setting where you lead. I pray that you will be exceedingly effective because you have the moral authority, the right to be a leader. Amen. I think it's important that we take a little time to reflect. Um, so even before the, the worship team comes up, um, I'm going to have all of us just for a few moments pause and pray. And it's okay that there's no music or anything. I mean, for now, let's just get quiet before the Lord. And I want, I, I want the first prayer... By the way, if, you're, if you have kids and seeds and you do need to excuse yourself, please, you can feel free to do that quietly. But if you can stay, maybe it's been your experience in some leadership role that you're just really frustrated. No one listens to you. No one respects you. Nobody is changing in response to you. And maybe the Lord is trying to say to you today, that it might be precisely because you have forfeited your moral authority. You've barked loud. You've been clever in your arguments, but you don't have moral authority in that person's eyes. 
Maybe you've lacked courage when you needed it. Maybe they don't really believe you care about them or that you even once really stepped into their shoes to think about what it's like. Or maybe they look at your life and say, you know what? You talk a good game, but you have a lousy walk. You have so many opinions and so little history, so little track record. And so I am not convinced. And if that's where you are as a leader in any capacity in your life, I think what we need to do together is repent and invite God to come and change us and lead us to moral authority. I'm going to pray that for myself as well as I'm going to invite you to do that. And let's do that right now, can we? And after about a minute of prayer, I'm going to invite the praise team to come quietly up and help lead us. Okay? And a little more time of prayer. You know, this topic of moral authority is not some pie-in-the-sky theory. It's about real people you care about. You know, those of you who are bosses, do you know that there are people working under you who are suffering every day in quiet frustration? Feeling helpless because nobody who has the right title sees anything clearly. Nobody cares who has the power to do anything to change things. Some of us, our children are waiting for their dads and their moms to wake up. They can't grow up functioning like orphans. They need more than food and health care. They need someone to shape their hearts. Take the time. Some of us have a younger sibling who, as they grow into adulthood, is so lost. And we yell at them. We get on their case. But when they look at us, there is no moral authority. And you worry so much about where their lives are going, but you feel powerless to make a difference. This is real life that we're praying for. And there are real people who need us to have moral authority because their lives have to change. So let's go back in prayer and ask the Lord, Give me real moral authority, courage, compassion, consistency. Whatever I need so that when I can stand to speak for you, those who need to hear will have open hearts and open ears. Let's pray that to the Lord right now. Lord, shape us in such a way that we will have moral authority. Every one of us will lead someone sometime. And so we pray that you will teach us to live with integrity and moral authority so that when it comes our time to stand and speak against injustice and for the benefit of others, our voice will be heard and not shut out. We pray for all those in our church and in our nation who are already leading or soon to govern. Break and humble their hearts. And I pray that you will give every person who leads a handle on this moral authority, which gives us the real power to lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. 
If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.